On Saturday, April 27th, filmmakers Maya Weschler and Lise Friedman will be having a special NYU screening of their latest film, If the Dancer Dances. The 2019 feature documentary brings viewers into the intimate world of the dance studio, where an iconic work by the legendary Merce Cunningham is passed to a new generation of dancers. If a dance is not danced, it vanishes. In trying to preserve the iconic work of dancer and choreographer Merce Cunningham, Award-winning documentary filmmaker Maya Weschler and author and Gallatin professor Lise Friedman's newest film, If the Dancer Dances, brings viewers up close and personal into a dance studio that recreates Merce's iconic work, Rainforest. Last week, I had the opportunity to talk to them both about the film as they prepare to have a special NYU screening and Q&A on Saturday, April 27th over at Quad Cinema on 24 West 13th Street. First and foremost, I just watched the film. Super excited to talk about it. So thank you so much for coming down. Thanks for having us. Right off the bat, I'm interested. How did you two kind of partner up for this uh, documentary? Maya and I were neighbors in Brooklyn. We started a conversation around the time Merce died in 2009 uh, about the uh, ephemerality of the work and the question of, since Merce had decided that the company would disband two years after his death, um, we had started talking about the idea of the finality of that and the fact that most people had no real understanding how ephemeral dance is and um, the fact that you could you can go to a museum and you can see paintings for many decades after an artist has died and dance does not have the same kind of um, tactility or visual presence um, without the dancers in the room. So we became very interested in this idea of how Merce's work would live on after he died. For a long time, and realized that we had an interesting idea, potentially for a film, and we went to approach the Cunningham Trust and to ask what work was being staged, what work was being licensed. And it so happened that uh, Stephen Petronio had just begun his Bloodlines project and had just licensed Rainforest, which is a piece that Merce choreographed in 1968 with decor by Andy Warhol. So that was a wonderful opportunity for us to get into the studio and to begin to capture the process of transmission. One thing I really enjoyed off the bat was your kind of seamless integration between modern day rehearsal time and, you know, the various rehearsal times that Merce used to orchestrate. I wanted to know how you kind of found this footage and how much footage did you guys have to go through to implement this? Well, we were very fortunate with the archival footage. Um, we knew that we wanted most of the film to be cinema verite, that we wanted it to be pre present tense. We wanted it to be what we were shooting, the, the, the actual transmission of this particular piece. But we knew we'd have to go back in time in order to give a, a sense of who Merce was and what the work looked like. And we had the great good fortune that the premiere of Rainforest in Buffalo, New York in 1968 was shot by D.A. Pennebaker and Chris Hedges, and so there's a beautiful film record of that performance, and that sufficed unto itself to illustrate what Rainforest mm. is. Um, so we got very fortunate with that piece of footage, and then we were made aware of a, another film that was shot in 1967 by a film crew from Germany. When they came to New York, they were following Merce in the studio at 498 Third Avenue, 
as he was creating um, his dance work, Scramble. And this is a wonderful film that we were able to put footage from. And as you say, we're in the studio with mm-hmm. him. And so we can see who, who the man is and who he's working with and who his dancers are. Speaking of the dancers, um, another beautiful thing about the film is the way you're able to kind of explain Merce's style and um, his way of teaching through a lot of former students and um, people who used to be in the company. What was the process like trying to find all these uh, different people from different eras of Merce? We were very fortunate on several counts. The stagers who were in the room with the Petronio dancers, there were three of them. One of them um, was Meg Harper, who danced with Merce in Rainforest. She was able to bring history of the working with Merce on Rainforest in particular into the room. And we had two stagers who were in the last iteration of the company as well, who were able to bring their own experiences into the room. Plus, we had the great fortune of being able to interview original members mm-hmm. of Rainforest, uh, Gus Solomons, who speaks in the film, Sandra Niels, and Albert Reed. Their presence in the film gave a lot of gravitas. What type of questions did you ask these people to kind of get those um, multi-dimensional, kind of almost like storytelling-like answers? We knew that what we wanted to do was shoot to capture what was happening in front of us in the process and then we wanted our characters the people in front of us to narrate in a sense what we were seeing through the camera lens so it's almost just like a what's happening here what's going on what are you trying to do what do you hope the results will be so it was really based on what was happening in front of the camera that's that's how our questions came about speaking of the camera too one very intimate scene that happens um, when Meg and Stephen are talking about that relationship between age and dancing. Mm. What was it kind of like to get these intimate conversations with them knowing that, hey, we have a camera in front of us? How were you able to make them feel comfortable in that environment? Well, that's the what's so wonderful about documentary film. You know, you put a mic on people and they kind of forget that you're there. So they're just carrying on with their lives. And if you're fortunate, and there's not too much activity, and you actually have the camera on the important people who are mic'd, because maybe there's other activity and the camera's in another place. It just so happened that that particular scene was at the end of the day of rehearsal, and so nothing else was going on in the studio, and the camera was on them, and I think that they weren't even that aware that the camera was on them, and like you said, it was a very personal conversation, and we just happen to have picked it up, and it's just its a wonderful insight into who the two of them are. Being a former member of Mercer's studio, what was it like to see this new take on his classic, and what was it like being in almost kind of like a familiar situation with the studio? Well, it was very different, actually. I mean, what was familiar about it was the fact that it was the Mercer's choreography, mm-hmm. but it's very different to be watching the process unfold in front of me. Uh, to be watching Stevens Company, which I, I knew very well at the time and know even better now, uh, and to know those dancers and how wonderfully gifted they are and how expert they are at his choreography, his movement, which is so dynamic and, and so propulsive. And to, so to watch them take on and begin to gain a sense of ownership and authority over Merce's work was really interesting to me. Um, my experiences in the studio with Merce was very different. You know, it was a long time ago, and I was one of his dancers. The experiences are really not comparable, but the common thing is that a studio experience 
no matter what the style is, no matter who the choreographer is, there are certain givens. The intimacy, the attention to detail, the fact that you have to be completely in line with what the choreographer is trying to do and deeply committed to the work. And that was evident from the moment we walked into the studio. Here at NYU, a lot of people are studying dance, a lot of people are studying film. As people who have kind of worked in both mediums, what advice do you have for aspiring filmmakers, aspiring dancers, just some knowledge to pass down? Well, I mean, I, I can say for advice for life is, you know, follow your passion, do what you love. Um, if that combines um, film and dance, which in my case, that's what it has done in this film, you know, I mean, then more power to you. Um, just clearly you're going to bring your whole self to something um, if you truly love it. I'll just second that emotion. You don't get anywhere uh, meaningful unless you invest, you know, 110% of yourself, whether it's dance or film or music or whatever it happens to be. I mean, that, 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 that's where the reward comes. That's where the struggle comes. And, and that's what makes it interesting and worth pursuing. Thank you guys so much. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you very much. Amidst New York's changing seasons, there's one place in the city where summer is preserved. Here's reporter Cora Wombelmiesner with the story. A few weeks ago, it still felt like winter, so I went uptown to stand in a hot, humid, 1,200-square-foot room filled with just shy of 600 individual insects. There's possibly only one bug that people will willingly and enthusiastically pay money to be surrounded by, and it's butterflies. Each year for the past 21 years, the American Museum of Natural History has brought back the Butterfly Conservatory. And I was fortunate enough to speak with someone who's been there from the very start, Hazel Davis. I wanted to hear how over 70 different species of butterfly from across the globe found their way into one room in New York City. My name is Hazel Davis. Welcome to Butterflies. So I'm the director of living exhibits of all the insects. Butterflies really are kind of an ambassador insect because people tend to like them because they're very pretty to look at and people aren't afraid of them, whereas people can be afraid of a lot of other insects. So this is a great way to introduce people to insects in general. What we want to provide for them is um, a nice warm space. They're cold-blooded, so they need to be warm to fly. And most of our species are from the tropics because that's where the biggest diversity of butterfly species are. So um, being tropical species, they want to be nice and warm. It needs to feel like it does where they would naturally fly. So as you can feel, it's nice and warm and humid in here, and the butterflies are very active. We have lots of nice bright spots where it's kind of sunny, um, where they can fly and bask under the light, absorbing the heat. We have nectar plants for them so that they can feed, and we have resting spots for them. The USDA is stricter than you might think about international butterfly breeding so the museum has to take certain precautions to prevent it. This means omitting the plants on which the butterflies would lay their eggs in the wild. 
So butterflies, when they're reproducing, um, a lot of species are very specific as to the plant that the caterpillar will eat. So, for example, a monarch that most people are familiar with, the caterpillars can only eat milkweed. So we have monarchs in here, so we don't have any milkweed plants. So all of the butterfly species that we have that we import, we don't have any of the corresponding host plants or basically what the caterpillar would eat in here. So USDA governs basically how we operate. There are quite a few places like this now around the country and around the world that want to import butterflies. So there is a whole butterfly breeding industry. We have two farms in Florida. We have Costa Rica, two farms, Ecuador. We have Australia. Malaysia, Thailand, uh, and Kenya, where we import from. We're open from October through the end of May. During that time, we'll have over 100, probably up to around 130 different species from all of those places around the world come in. There's always something different happening in here because of all the movement and the live butterflies. It makes it a lot of fun.